When you get a doctor's note, it's going to tell you what to eat, how much to exercise. Uh, it's going to tell you to prioritize sleep, and it's going to suggest a hobby, probably, something like that. <clears throat> and you should respond to that note with what question, or maybe what question naturally comes to mind. When someone wants to change your life, shift it up, turn it upside down, tell you to do this instead of that, eat those instead of these, what do you say? So what I say, why? Tell me why. And then the doctor's going to say, because we looked into things. We checked your blood. We looked as deep as we could in your body, and there are some problems. You got some deep problems. It's working its way out in your life in uh, some unhealthy ways. And if you don't change something, you're going to get more unhealthy, and you're going to die prematurely. Is that a good enough answer? That's a pretty good answer. Statistics show in the medical world that change or die isn't as motivating as you might think. Ninety percent of people do not change following a diagnosis or a message like that. We're going to spend the better part of two months looking at a doctor's note oftentimes referred to as the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments say, hey, you know what you should do? This and that and this and the other. And we go, why? And God says, I've taken a pretty deep look. You got some problems. And if you keep going down this path, you're going to get more unhealthy and you're going to die in a multitude of ways. I don't, know, I don't know what your view of the Ten Commandments is. Like, I don't know how you would summarize them in your own head. Uh, God's moral law, Christian guidelines, the big do's and don'ts of religion, um, roadmap to godliness. I, I, you know, I don't know what. They are the doctor's note. But if we look closer at them and we listen to Jesus... It's important to listen to Jesus when you're reading the Old Testament. Do you realize that? The, new, the Old Testament is understood on a level it was never understood until Jesus came and interpreted it for us. Always look back through Christ into the Old Testament. There are a lot of crazy questions that should be asked when you read the Old Testament. There are some passages that make no sense, made no sense, things that happened that more often than not, if you look back through Christ's eyes, you get a much better picture of what was going on, what was true, what was meant. And we do the same with the Ten Commandments. We, we look back through Christ's eyes at the Ten Commandments. We listen to his teachings about the Ten Commandments, and they come alive. The commandments are the doctor's note, but if we look closer, listen to Jesus, we can see that the 10 and all of the laws that follow were given for purposes much deeper, listen, much deeper than a set of rules to follow, a set of behavioral modification techniques, or a construct for societal health. 
The Ten Commandments are all those things, but they have much richer content for us now that Jesus has opened it up and showed us. Two things in particular that I want to try to get in front of you today before we launch into any of them. The Ten Commandments are a relational covenant. They, are a, they were a new covenant. We live in the new covenant space, the post-Jesus space, the new covenant. And we think of the Old Testament as the old covenant. But there are multiple covenants in the Old Testament. And each time an old covenant was uh, superseded by the next covenant, or not necessarily superseded, but added to it, there was a new covenant. This was a new covenant in the middle of the old covenant. And there's an Abrahamic covenant. There's a, a, a covenant that he made with Noah, right? The promises of God, the covenants of God. And this is another one. It's a covenant with God meant, for the, uh, meant as a framework for human flourishing. God says, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a promise with you, but it's conditional, the Abrahamic promise was unconditional. God says, I'm going to do something for you. I promise I'm going to do this. And no matter how poorly you live your life and the, and the people of God live, I'm still going to. This covenant, the Ten Commandments, the law, was a conditional covenant. God said, I am making promises like I'd always do, but you have a part in it. This is a two-way street covenant. You do your part, I do my part. This is the way this one works. It's a framework for flourishing. If you don't understand the deeper parts and essence of the Ten Commandments, they just feel like, apart from a few where you just think, well, that's, yeah, I get that. No one's usually, no one normally argues with don't murder. You know what I mean? No one's going, ah, it's so oppressive. <laughs> but the Ten Commandments in general tend to feel oppressive. But God would say, this is, this is how you find your freedom. This is how you flourish. And we scratch our heads and we think, how is it possible that a, that a cage or, 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 or a wall or a, or a, you know, a, a resistance or a, um, how's that freedom? Maybe one of the best metaphors is the life of a fish. A life of a fish is very, very good in the water. Would you agree with that? The fish might look out of the water and see the party going on on the beach. Sun tanning, little drinks, the cool little refreshing drinks. I don't know what, what happens. I, games, music, and the fish says, I don't want to live within the constraints of this water. I want to be up there having a party. And if it's us, what God would say is, yeah, but you're a fish. And your best life is within the constraints of this water. 
This is where you find your freedom. This is where you find all that you are intended to be. And the fish can ostensibly do one of two things. Go, okay, I see the framework. I, I, I believe you. I trust you. I'll live this way. If the fish had the capacity not to trust the creator and go with its own intentions, what would it do? It'd get out there on the beach and it would be great for like what? Five, two minutes? Starts getting a little itchy probably, you know? A little thirsty. You see the point, right? The Ten Commandments are a framework for the flourishing of life, and they are intended by God to meet you and interact with you and to grow you and to allow you and afford you the opportunity to be all that he intended for you to be. But you got to believe and you got to trust that that is found inside this water. It's a relational covenant, a framework for flourishing. Secondly, it's a character revelation. The Ten Commandments were really the next revelation in the history of the revelations that God is bringing to humankind about who he is. From the very beginning, from Adam, the man, do you know that was his name? It's just Adam, the, the, word, the name Adam is, is a Hebrew word that actually just means the man. <laughs> it looks like Adam. But his name, in essence, was the man. And his wife's name by, the name, by the way, was the life. Because through her, creation would come to life. So the man and his life, the man in life, beautiful. From that point, God began to reveal himself to his creation, to, these, the, to, to mankind. And you can follow it all the way through. Cain and Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and a couple of generations and then Moses and then on and on through the judges and into the kings and the monarchs. But all through that process, at least from the, like if, we're, if we put ourselves in Moses' shoes, from Adam to him, there's been this steady revelation of who is God. And the Ten Commandments are the latest addition to that revelation. They show us the framework for flourishing, and they also show us God. They're a foreshadowing, if you will, of who Jesus will be. The Ten Commandments show us God. We're going to step into this with anticipation and hope and courage to understand as best we can and to live out the depth and the beauty of the Ten Commandments. So um, let me invite you into it. In fact, let me pray. God, we uh, want to acknowledge our inability to even begin to understand the things that are about you and about your son and about the spirit uh, on our own. And we invite you into this moment 
to damage our ignorance, <clears throat> to impact our hearts, to fill our souls, and give us what we need at these moments and these times to know you better. In Jesus' name, amen. So what are they? Do you know the Ten Commandments? Number one, no other gods before me. It's just me. I'm, I'm at the top of this thing, and there ain't no other equal, right? No idols. No, no representations of me that would keep you away from me or, or keep you from relationship with it. Even if, it's a, even, it's a, even if it's a namesake of me, I don't like that because now you're focused on this, and I'm losing something with you. No, no idols, no graven images. Don't misuse my name. We, we tend to have diminished that down to one, I guess, or hyphenated or one or two uh, words that we would say are uh, swear words or cuss words, right? That we, we think, don't use God's name in vain. That, that, is a, that is a very superficial understanding of that. Although it's true if you break that word down, what's happening in that cuss word, I don't know what you guys call them, is I'm using God's name to bring condemnation upon something. And that is not my role or my job. That's what you do when you say that. You say, God, you know, I condemn this. Who, who, you're human. Why are you bringing God, the judge of all things? Why are you using him for your purposes? Why are you bringing his name down into the mundane, down into the base? He is sublime. He is to be revered. We don't leverage his name. We don't pitch it around. We don't use it without thought. We don't say my big G upstairs. That's way too familiar. That's way too brother-like. It's like, no, no, no. Don't, don't use my name in vain. Allow me the privilege in your life, in your heart, to have the place that is mine. Don't try to leverage me. Don't diminish me. Don't misuse my name. Keep the Sabbath. I need you to have your life rhythm in balance. You need some rest. God says, I rested. You should rest. Honor your mother and father. Learn down there on earth what it's like to live under authority. Because if you can't figure that out down there, you ain't going to go very far with me. I'm an authority figure and you got to figure that out. Honor your mother and father. Mothers and fathers, teach your children how to live within the framework of godliness. Don't murder. Seven, no adultery. Faithfulness within the vow set relationships of this life. Don't steal. Nine, don't lie, which is, a, we'll have to dig into that. That's not, a, but that's not a great, but it's kind of where we live, right? But it's don't bear false witness against another person. And then don't covet. Those are them. I wanted to give some historical context. Like, how did this, how did we get here? When they're delivered, when, when, when Moses um, understands them and, and receives them, they're three months in 
to what will be a 40-year journey after they've left, escaped, been set free from the Egyptians. They're only three months in. Arguably, a million or two or two and a half million people, one leader. <laughs> and he's like, I, I, I need some structure. <laughs> I got to figure this out. This is where we're at. Moses, remember? You got the man and the life and Enoch and Noah and We'll, I'll dig into these a little bit more. And then we come up through, you got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. Oh, thank God for Joseph. A couple or three generations. Now you have Moses. And you know the story of Moses? He's living in captivity. They've been in captivity in Egypt forever and ever. His life is uh, under threat even before he's born. And when he's born, his, his mom <laughs> sends him up the river. He's, he's abandoned, effectively, but then he's adopted into the family of Pharaoh. He ends up in the family of the very kingdom that is oppressing his people. He grows up, probably a pretty nice life compared to most of the Israelites. But one day, and this happens, right? In his 20s, maybe he's, you know, I don't know. We don't know how old he is. He steps back and he looks maybe for the first time and goes, this is, whoa, what's going on out here? These are my people. They're being oppressed. Look what's happening. For the first time in his life, he sees the oppression of his people. He sees somebody, some Egyptian beating an Israelite. He could have seen this on a daily basis. Our eyes aren't always open what's going on around us. He's no exception. Been there myself. It's probably happening right now. There's always stuff I'm not seeing and I should see. And he sees this go down and he addresses the situation. He ends up accidentally murdering a guy. So he has to flee. He goes to a sort of a satellite settlement of Egypt. It's really unclear what that settlement's about. It does seem like it might not have been really under the rule, under the thumb. They were living a very different life out there, but that's where he went. That's where he went out there. There were plenty of Israelites out there, and he's living out there. It's like, get away. He sees this horrible thing. He violates his own conscience in the middle of it. His life is threatened again, so he leaves. And then this happens. Bush is on fire. He sees it. The presence of God is palpable. He goes over to look. The bush is not burning up. It's just on fire, whatever that means. And he hears the voice of God. This is, for us, we're familiar. We're so familiar, which is such a good thing. We, we know God in ways that most of humanity had never had the privilege. 
the view of, of, of most gods for most of history was that they're angry and mean and in need of appeasement. Until Abraham comes on the scene, the experience of God from Adam up to that point was actually still pluralistic. There was no, it wasn't a mono, they didn't understand the one almighty God yet. The idea of being spoken to by God is riddled through their history. Moses says, Ben, paying attention though. He does understand a monotheistic God. He does understand that there's a he is he can look back through and see his forefathers and how they were living their life according to faith. We have a better idea of God, but still pretty limited. And from the bush, he hears Moses, Moses. And we learn some things about Moses in this moment. In the midst of his fleeing, in the mix of his shame and his guilt and his detachment, his response to God is, here I am. It's pretty brave. Who knows What's coming following Moses? Moses could be very disappointed in you, going to have to take you out. You, know, you don't know. He says, here I am. God says, oh, so don't, you know, Moses is moving in. He is, there is something within Moses. That of, of course, God understood it's part and parcel to why he's approaching Moses because of his character, because of his heart, because of his understanding that he's been able to glean over time. Moses is moving in. He hears his name and he, he, Moses wants this. Something within Moses that wants to be available and close to God. It's a pretty significant demonstration of what? Faith. He's coming closer. God says, oh, whoa, wait. You can't come any closer than that. You and I most very different, very different people. Love you. Great plans for you. But I'm holy. You're not. Like, I, I can't even, how can holy have unholy in its presence without becoming a little less holy? It's like, no, you can't come any closer. Take off your sandals. This is, this is holy ground. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of my name, worthy of being in my presence. Take off your sandals. This is holy ground. And then he says, I am the God of your father. Amram, I think, right? And the God of Abraham. Great, 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 great grandfather, and Jacob, and Isaac, Isaac, Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. I, I, I know these stories. They've been passed down to me. They've probably been documented. The life of the fathers of our faith. I'm being, I'm being singled out 
and mentioned with them. He humbles himself, afraid to look at God. He asks Moses essentially to free his people. He says, go to Pharaoh, tell him you're leaving. You're taking everybody with you. Moses says, who, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Why are you asking me to do this? <laughs> Did you see what happened back there? You know why I'm hanging out in Midian? We see Moses is available, he's humble, and he's reverent. We would do well to absorb and reflect those kinds of attitudes and postures with God. When we bring the Ten Commandments, the words and the revelation of God into our life, we should be reverent about the one who's bringing those to bear. We should be available for what we are being compelled. And we should be humble and understanding. We're fortunate to even be addressed, to even have them. God says, essentially, yeah, you're right. <laughs> you, you don't amount to much, but, and we get to know some things about God. See, the revelations are continuing. He says, I will be with you. Have you, have you had that answer in your prayers ever? God, I have this big decision to make. I don't know whether to go left or right. I don't know whether to keep going or stop. I don't know whether to do that or do this. God, I am humbly coming to you, humbly coming to you, asking you, the Almighty, the knower of all things, which way should I go? And do I have what it takes to go? And God says, I will be with you. I've had those prayers, and I've ended those prayers right there. Like, I, I like, walk out of the room. God, I, I'm asking, I'm trying to ask a real simple question here. I need to know whether to go left or right. And he says, I will be with you. Clearly more important than the answer that I want. I will be with you. And here's the sign, Moses, I want you to, Envision in your mind. Once you're out, you're going to end up on a mountaintop and you're going to worship me. You're going to meet with me again. I want you to keep that in mind. We see Moses is available. He's humble. He's reverent. He's called. He's been personally invited into the mission of God. So have you, Christian, believer. 
You're following Jesus. And Jesus says, go and make disciples. He, he, when you start following him, you are, you are personally invited into the mission. And there's a vision of this future, good, wonderful meeting place with God. In a spiritual sense, we look forward to that mountaintop. While we work our way through this life, and we're available, and we're humble, and we're reverent, and called, and on mission, we hope and anticipate that mountaintop one day where faith no longer be required, because we'll see him face to face, and we will find shalom, all things the way they should be, and we're ever meant to be. Moses says, okay, a couple more questions, if you don't mind. So I suppose I go to the Israelites and they say, and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? So he said, what? I so go back to the Israelites and, I, Israelites and I, all these people, and I tell them what you have told me and I tell them what we are going to do. And they're going to say, who told you that? Why should we follow you? Who are you talking about? What should I, who should I say you are? What should I say is your name? How do I describe you? And, and what does God say? You really can't describe me. In fact, as soon as you start trying to describe me, you will have diminished me. There's no way your human mind and your human words and your human understandings could possibly begin to, under, to, to describe me. Just say, I am who I am sent you. Say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. It's true. I mean, the depth of that is wonderful. It's not going to fly. <laughs> what does that mean? It means he's absolute God. He is the almighty God, the one for which no descriptors can capture him, the God of whom there is no equal. God is already teaching Moses the first of the commands that he's going to one day give him. You see that? Moses is commonly credited with writing the the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And it, it makes sense as an answer. It's no way to actually verify it, but it actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, you, know, once, you know, once we get from Abraham, uh, Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph, there's only three generations before we're at Moses. And it's after Joseph is gone, this wonderfully faithful life, which takes the Israelites into Egypt, right? Joseph, we will go into it later, but he ascends to one of the highest positions in Egypt. He saves Egypt and the Israelites, so they're already there. Joseph dies. At some point in the future, a new king, a new pharaoh of Egypt comes in, doesn't know Joseph doesn't care for him, and looks at the Israelites and says, these people are multiplying like rabbits. This is going to be trouble. This is going to be trouble. We need to put the thumb on these guys. We need to enslave them. And it just went wickedly bad. So then for three generations, they're in it before this stuff happens with Moses. 
So you got Joseph, who was certainly studying and learning about his immediate predecessors. How about that heritage? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And Joseph was certainly passing along his understanding of God to his son. And then there's one other son. And then there's Amram. That's Moses' grandfather. So Moses is right there in the thick of everything that God's been He knows, probably knows that. He does, knows the history of God and his people. It's very likely that he began to compile the narratives and the stories and hear and begin to record this. It's very probable. And we see a beautiful narrative of the revealing of the character of God. What happens in the garden? says to his children, his creation, create this wonderful place. You can't go over here and eat that because I'm in charge. This is a wonderful place, but I'm in charge. It's the first commandment. I'm in charge. I need you to trust me. These threads go all the way through the Old Testament. This, this thread of trust me we see that. God's saying, trust me, trust me, trust me. Stay in the water. Don't jump on the beach. Trust me. We also see a thread of man that is mistrusting of God. And then you see this third thread, which is the mercy of God. <laughs> Forgiveness. He just keeps, keeps going with them. Keeps, keeps offering mercy. We see this at the very, very beginning, this setup God, man, trust me, and mercy. This is a wonderful picture of God that's beginning to form in the minute of, of creation. And what happens? They don't trust. It's the second thread throughout the whole Bible. They don't trust. It comes clear to you and me. You and me, have, we have that thread. We don't trust. And when we don't trust, we jump up on the beach, which is another way of saying we're disobedient. And when we're disobedient, we are ungodly. And it starts working its way out. You see it right in Adam and Eve. God's looking for them, asks a question. What do they do? They lie. They lie. They start lying. And they experience the mercy of God. He didn't snuff them out. He left them be where they put themselves, separated from God. Shame. He's merciful deserves our trust. We don't. And it just starts going bad like almost right away. Adam has Cain and Abel. And what happens? Cain murders his brother because he's jealous. That's going to show up on the mountaintop, right? He's jealous. He's angry. He's lying. He ends up murdering. You can go right down through it. Adam or uh, Abraham chosen by God. Like I said earlier, he, he is the first to, to accept and understand and be, it be revealed to him that there is one God and only one God. He experiences a relational God. He experiences a God that wants to bless and be with and make promises and provide. 
the story of Abraham is this gradual shift from fear to faith, and you see it riddled all through his life, all the way through. It goes back and forth, just like you and me. Same thing with Isaac. Same thing with Jacob. Jacob deceives his own father to get a blessing that wasn't his. And the heritage ripples out into the 12 sons, and it it's, it's, becomes a mess, except for this Joseph, a man of integrity, faithful. He, just, he demonstrated a very rare commitment to God, um, his ways, honesty, respect for authority, concern for others. He was, a, he was a model of obedience to God and what they understood the commands to be at that point. He loved his neighbor. And then you have Moses. Seeing all that, right? This is one of my point. Seeing all that, understanding all that, hearing about God. And he brings his own bumpy journey to play like we do. We don't just understand God from what we read and from our, uh, you know, our own heritage and our, our own spheres of life. We have our own experience with God that reflects everything that has been true throughout the history of people. He deals with his abandonment, I'm certain. The godless culture that he was raised in shaped him in ways that was ungodly. He lived with the guilt of that accidental murder. He faced loneliness as a leader of millions of people with no clear understanding of all that's going on. And despite all these challenges, Moses continued to cycle back to faith, humility, receiving the mercies of God, and even, even being the author of the, the revealed nature and character of God in the Pentateuch. He's primed. He is primed to be the recipient and the conveyor of God's summarized commands. Can you see that? Just a couple more things. I'm going to wrap it here. So here they are, three months in. Moses led, leads the people out of the camp. This is Exodus 19, to meet with God. They stand at the foot of the mountain. Moses wants everybody to go. It's covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in a fire. So God's coming down to the top of the mountain. The smoke built up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently. And he's going to be invited up there. This isn't the most attractive situation. But it's God. He's coming down. Sound of a trumpet grows louder and louder. Moses speaks. Uh, he spoke the voice of God, uh, uh, answered him. He spoke in the voice of God, answered him. The Lord descended to the top of the mountain, Mount Sinai, called Moses to the top of the mountain. So God's coming down. Moses is going up. So Moses went up to the Lord and said, he says, go down and warn the people so they don't force their way through to see the Lord. I mean, we'll go into this later, but they were not ready. And their fears, among other disqualifying things, kept the people from going. So it had to be just Moses. That's a very superficial, simple simplification. So we have this Moses, he's acquainted with God. He longs for his presence. He's been there before in a different format, right? He's risking his life going up that mountain. Like, you, again, you don't know what... <laughs> he's been instructed, don't come near me, it's, it's too much. So here he's going up there. 
He's made monumental efforts to afford 2 million people opportunities to also meet with God. Their fear and lack of faith dislodges them from that, and he ends up being the one that interfaces with God. And through this indescribable meeting with God, All of his experiences, his humility, his availability, his faith, he is entrusted with these commands. The breath of God into a recognizable, actionable set of directions, commands, right from the presence of God. It's the character of God in writing as best it could happen. That's where we are. But it's not until Jesus descends from heaven that we fully understand them. Their beauty, their depth, and their power. That's what we're going to jump into next week. There, there is this beautiful cohesion between Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you might want to turn there this week. Matthew 5 and 6 and 7, where Jesus is working with the Ten Commandments and revealing the depth and the beauty of them and how they are intended to work. We'll dive into that next week. This framework for flourishing, this character revelation of God. And here's the tease. It's not just a character revelation of God. It ends up being a character revelation of ourselves. It is a revelation of God's character, but it also ends up being the revealer, the mirror, the, the insight into our own character. It's the blood test, actually, that shows us, each of us in community here, what's truly blocking our way to the place we are meant to be in the presence of God. So I, want to, I would just want to encourage you to embrace the moment. Open your Bible to Exodus 20, Matthew 5 and 6. Immerse yourself in the words of God and be ready with an open heart, an available heart, a willingness to engage. You know what the wonderful beautiful, indescribable, unanticipated, surprising truth of this whole thing is why God is doing all of this in the first place. The God of the universe, 
the one that deserves our reverence, the one that could rightly say, you cannot come into my presence, wants to be with you. Deeply. Authentically. And he wants you to be with him. Have you ever thought about that? It's different. We think, oh yeah, so of course God wants to be with you. No, he, he wants to be with you, but he wants you with him. Jesus said that's what makes him complete. Does Jesus need anything? No. Does God need anything? No. But there is a heart level dissatisfaction that is solved when his people are with him and he is with them. And that's where we're headed. That's where we're headed. God, would you get us there? Would you get us there? In Jesus' name, amen.